Hello everyone and welcome to this new episode of the Everything Accordion podcast. Before we dive into this very interesting conversation with our guest, I would like to point out that this episode will contain also some music and I would like to thank our guest for providing the audio files for this episode. I will be taking a small Christmas and New Year's break until middle of January. But I already have some new episodes planned for next year, so be on the lookout for those. And you might want to take this time to catch up on the episodes that you might want to listen to but haven't had the chance to do so yet. If you are a fan of this podcast and you really enjoy the content, make sure to also rate the podcast if you're on Spotify or leave a review wherever you listen to the podcast. This will really help to bring it to more accordion enthusiasts and people that might want to hear the podcast but don't know of its existence. So this helps the algorithm to propose the show to more listeners. If you enjoy the podcast, consider making a small monthly donation to support the content and the creation of different episodes. This helps me stay motivated and bring new content on a regular basis. Also, you can reach out to me with messages and suggestions and comments on how I can improve the podcast. That feedback is always very welcome. And from the 1st of January, I decided that I will make the chat over virtual coffee service on my website entirely free. So if you'd like to talk to me about your doubts, about your ideas, about your problems maybe, or about anything at all, just go to my website. The link is in the description of this episode and book a session with me. And let's have a chat together. So welcome to another episode of the Everything Accordion podcast. Uh, today, I'm excited to get to know a young accordionist from, from Scotland, the first Scottish accordionist on the podcast, <laughs> who is not only a young performer who has released a very interesting CD, an album, in fact, a monographic album, which we will talk about on the podcast as well. But he's also a singer, a pianist. He's also involved in storytelling projects, which is something that interests me. And hopefully we'll talk about this as well. So without further ado, welcome Neil Sutcliffe on the podcast. Neil, how are you doing? Hello. I'm great. Thanks. I'm I'm really excited to be here because it's been I've been listening to, you know, the podcast on and off for the last few months, just dotting in and out. And it's such an amazing resource, I feel, for connecting accordionists around the world and, you know, learning about what, what else is going on in other corners of the world. And I am so excited to be here to to tell a wee bit about what's happening with in Scotland with the classical accordion community as well. Amazing. Yeah. And thanks for your kind words about the podcast. That was kind of the goal of starting this whole thing. Um, I also find it very interesting and exciting for me to connect with people who I didn't know anything about because mm -hmm. I didn't really know you or what you do. You just reached out to me on Facebook and I thank you for that. Um, and, you know, I started kind of looking you up, hearing what you're doing, and it was so interesting and so different from everything that I kind of know. Mm. Uh, it's still in that realm, but it's, you know, it's something very special, I feel. So let's go from the beginning. 
how did you start uh, as an accordionist? Because I would imagine in Scotland the accordion is quite, well, maybe some variation of the accordion family is quite well known for folk music. So how did how did it all start for you? Yeah, very much. Um, I mean, I, I had a, quite a sort of maybe windy journey towards the classical accordion side of things. Started off, I grew up in a very musical family with a lot of folk music around, uh, but also, you know, wide influences from an early age. The first stuff I played on piano was boogie woogie and sort of jazz and blues and stuff. And I got some classical piano lessons. But my first experience with the accordion actually was one of my very best friends in primary school came in at lunchtime with an accordion who, and he'd sort of learned to play a little bit. And he was so popular <laughs> for that lunchtime. Everybody loved Vincent because he had the accordion. And my dad played accordion and I thought, I've got an accordion at home. I could play something too. Of course, it's not quite so exciting when someone else brings it in the second day. But um I just started figuring it out on my own and my dad helped me get started a little bit. And for, I don't know, maybe about four, four or five years, I was mostly just self-taught on the accordion. Uh, I had a few lessons from traditional musicians and uh but was kind of experimenting already wanting to push beyond just because as you say in scotland we have a very very strong identity of the accordion as a traditional instrument and a little bit of a cliched instrument uh, mm-hmm. i think generally in the public for um I, I believe it's kind of similar in different places around the world as well but it's it's often quite associated with playing for a, a particular dance style in scotland country dancing or Cayley dancing um, and I love that. I do a lot of playing for Kayleys and dancing as well and calling. That's a big part of my life. But m- musically, I was interested in exploring other things on the instrument. And I was studying at the, the Royal Conservatory of Scotland in Glasgow at their Saturday junior school. And I was doing classical piano and a friend of mine who is, is an incredible accordionist called Ryan Corbett, who's really doing amazing things with the accordion he said Neil I know you play a little bit of accordion why don't you go and do some second study lessons with my teacher Georgie Georgie Geich and I started getting a couple of lessons and I just fell in love with it was so exciting it was kind of what I think what I'd been subconsciously looking for with the accordion was this classical world and at the beginning I was just still on Stradella bass um, but even just playing some of these variations and stuff, uh, and I was kind of itching to get a free bass. I was really excited by that. So I came to I came to the classical side of things, and particularly the free bass accordion, a wee bit later than a lot of um, a lot of my other friends who who studied with Georgie and who went through that. Uh, so in a way, I always felt I was catching up with that a little bit. But that was that in a nutshell. That's briefly been my way into the accordion. Nice. That's quite a story. You know, the cool kid that, you know, normally the people would see somebody with a guitar as the cool kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say it, it, it hasn't really lasted, hasn't worked out that way. <laughs> but um, that was the idea. <laughs> well, you know, reality and expectations, you know. But, uh, yeah, I think that's, that was a good motivator. And um, as you were saying, you were doing... 
something inside because I, I kind of can can relate to that. The accordion has very strong identity in Moldova as well as a, well it had and still has as a very traditional folk instrument. Uh, now it's gotten also like this other side, the more academic side, if we can yeah. call it that. Um, but somehow, yeah, it was cool, nice when I was growing up, but that's the only thing I saw, you know, and at the time I didn't really have a lap, uh, computer at home, I didn't really have the internet uh, at home, so it was still kind of all rolling out in, in our country, and I didn't really see or hear that many accordionists around. I kind of got hooked by the accordion when I started hearing all of his works coming from um, from modern-day modern Russia, Ukraine, you know, uh, because we had a big influence from there culturally. And that kind of got me interested in the instrument. But as you say, like, for us, the free bass accordion, except for it being a very expensive instrument, and you need to convince your parents that it's an investment uh, <laughs> and that you really, it's not going to be like one year and then, okay, I'm done. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I also went to the Freebase system when I was about 16, maybe. So, yeah, yeah was a lot of, yeah, grunt to cover. Yeah, yeah I, I could imagine, yeah. A uh, lot of ground to cover, but when you have a, a good teacher and a good mentor, can help you with that i think you can actually like make it and do that now we will listen to bubbly jock by ronald stevenson performed by neil sutcliffe and rosie lavery Well, I must admit, from the recording, it, it seemed like you were playing your entire life <laughs> on the free bass accordion. <laughs> I'm glad it. I'm glad it comes across. I, I do need to. I mean, we can maybe talk about this more separately, but um, I need to put my hat off to Georgie, my teacher, Georgie Gouch. He is really the reason today why we have this community of classical accordion, of you know, concert accordionists in Scotland. It was him that came to the RCS and set that the course of the department up there in the uh, early 2000s, 2006. And it's and he is, to be honest, still really the main driving force as a teacher in Scotland. There's a few mm -hmm. other, some of his students have gone on to do a bit of teaching, but um, and it was his teaching style and his passion, not just for the accordion and the music, 
his passion for his students, for the people. You know, he really cares about the, the, the students that he's working with and supporting their individual musicality, not just, you know, pushing everyone into a mode, you know, finding the things that they, they're good at and want to do and want to explore. Yeah, I think that's one of the most valuable things that a teacher can have, being very caring, but at the mm. same time pushing you to explore your own limits, giving you just the tools to kind of, you know, um, get yourself inside that world so that you start digging for yourself. Because otherwise, you know, you finish the conservatory and then it's done and then you're just left there with what you had before. So, you know, uh, yeah, but I'm very curious because I think, like, can, can we talk a little bit, a small bracket, <laughs> about the accordion environment in Scotland? Maybe I'll contact George and uh, ask him if he would like to also kind of talk about that. Because in the UK in general, there's not that many places, right, where you could study professionally at a higher level accordion. There's the Royal Academy of Music, yeah. Owen Murray, and then there's George in Glasgow, and then I'm not really aware of any other places. Um, maybe That's... you could... Tell That's that. sort of it. Those are the two main hmm. centres, I think. Um, Owen Murray, of course, was the first sort of Scottish accordionist to mm-hmm. to really embrace the classical accordion. And he did incredible work. Again, we might come back to this, but he did incredible work, work working with composers back in mm-hmm. the uh, 80s and 90s in Scotland to get them to commission works. But then, yes, he went down to London and set up the department and the academy d- down there. Uh, and Georgie's been running up in the RCS. So Georgie also teaches um, in some local schools and stuff around. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of, I think, the interesting thing going forward in Scotland is in terms of trying to build a sustainable community is we need more accordion teachers working in schools in that like early education to to sort of give. And there are a lot of accordion teachers working in traditional music. And I, I think it's really important to not sort of dismiss traditional music as a way Absolutely. into the accordion. It's the way that most people start learning accordion. And as, you know, I'm a passionate traditional folk musician as well. So I'm interested from all sides. But yeah, more more accordion teachers that can help direct uh, children who are interested in going down the more academic route or the slightly more classical or contemporary roots on the instruments that is still lacking a little bit in scotland but th- but there's there's an energy right now so there's really there's a real small community of students that have come through georgie and a couple you know me myself i never really went down the whole competition route i wasn't i wasn't so comfortable in that setting but there's a couple of players i mentioned ryan corbett and another Sophia Ross, you know, who are really winning competitions, going and traveling internationally and sort of, I suppose, flying the flag a little bit for, you know, Scotland on the, on the classical accordion map. Um, but yeah, you're right. There's only, there's only those two bases and they're kind of, they're kind of, you know, quite far apart in some way. Um, so you, if you're in Scotland, your only way into the classical accordion is really through Georgie or having come across one of these performers. Yeah. Now we will listen to a little mouth music written by Ronald Stevenson, performed by Neil Sutcliffe. <laughs> ¶¶ 
Yeah, I think it has a lot to say about how we build like an, an accordion community, a local accordion community, as you say, right? Because yeah. I, I was thinking about this in this area where I live in Austria, because there's only one academy here and a lot of schools, really a lot. There's like 20 music schools, I think a little bit less maybe. And in every single one of them, you would have like the Steirische Harmonica or accordion or something like that, you know. And it, I'm surprised that there are not a lot of pupils at the academy, students at the academy, because they would have an amazing time developing not only their skills mm. in the three, four years of bachelor, but they would also have a system in place where you can teach at different music schools and sustain yourself, as well as getting... Uh, pedagogical experience growing as a teacher and at the same time cultivating, you know, because it's not, if we put ourselves the goal to kind of every single pupil needs to become a professional, I think that's the quickest way to get frustrated with teaching yes. because it's, <laughs> you know, my expectations and what I want almost never coincides with what the pupil wants. And as you say, if you find the, uh, the pupils that are interested in that and have that click, you know, I, mm. I, I'm very, yeah, I, I should explore this psychological thing. What makes people click? Why the accordion? Why certain types of music, you know? But there's this weird thing that it clicks and you just want to go there. Like you and me, for example, with a more classical and modern world, right? Because we had accordion, we were exposed to it, we saw it, we knew it as an instrument, but somehow we didn't really maybe feel that it was ours, you know? Mm. So we, we longed for something more. Um, and I feel that, yeah, if the professor, you know, the centerpiece, let's say, of an academy um, creates with the students that came into the class two, three, four, whatever the number. And then they kind of go working in music schools and then they bring, you know, it, it kind of brings the level on 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 many different sides, right? right? Because then you would have, you know, even if a pupil doesn't become a concert performer or, you know, it still stays and they would still be a part of that community and, you know, that yeah. would be the basis. Or maybe their kids will want to one day do that, you know? I think yeah. uh, com community for me is the big word there about creating a community. I, I, and so in my final year in my bachelor's uh, at the RCS, I, um, I did a research project because I wanted to learn more about the history of what, what you know, the, the small history of the classical accordion in Scotland. And so I interviewed Owen Murray and interviewed Georgie Geich and one of his first pupils and created a little sort of, yeah, a little sort of, article about it and one of the things that came up talking to Georgie was about creating this 
you know, one of my sort of taglines was that we, we currently have a community of performance, you know, but mm-hmm. what I think we could work towards is developing a stronger community of pedagogy, a community of teachers and of students that are talking to each other about teaching and about learning in the classical accordion, sharing resources, sharing, you know, tips, experience, frustrations, all that kind of thing. Cause like, like, like anything in life, when, when you feel like you're working away in your own little bubble and it's just you, it can be very isolating and it, you know, it feels like you've got the whole world on your shoulders. But the, the reality usually is that somewhere in the world, somebody else is having exactly the same experience and is also, you know, creating the same resources that you're creating or, you know, finding better ones. Or, so I think the more discourse and the more communication and the more sense of being part of a network um, of teaching, performing, learning, sharing, having fun, listening, you know, even just going out to performances, things like that. That's so important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think you've put it really nicely and exactly that, that, that's the point, you know, of, uh, I, yeah, sometimes it, it did feel like I was, you know, trying to do something and then I had nobody to talk to about that. And then, yeah, you know, and then when I talked to one of my colleagues and he was telling me the exact same things I was struggling with, I was like, okay, so, <laughs> you know. We're not alone. We're just a lot of different islands that are trying to keep afloat you know, at mm-hmm. all times. So, yeah, that's very curious. And then the question is, how do we do that? Uh, but that's, uh, I think, a topic for a different episode. And maybe we'll get, you know, yeah. more colleagues to sit around and just, you know, talk about that. Cool. So let's move on to your projects and mm. you've reached out to me with this very interesting a CD with a composer who I didn't know about. Uh, yesterday I actually saw on, I looked him up as an artist on Spotify and I saw that also the famous pianist Igor Levit also recorded some works by him. So, you know, maybe it's not a very well-known name in the accordion world, which is a pity, but I am sure that listeners there will be a link in the description of the episode. Go and listen to the CD because it's really great and it has one of uh, my favorite combinations of instruments, which is percussions and accordion, which sounded really, really great. And yeah, let's talk a little bit about the CD, how it came to be and, you know, all the process. Um, I'm sorry, I'm so excited. I don't quite know where to start. <laughs> so my, my real, real passion in my last couple of years studying became learning about Scottish composers and classical composers because there's a strain there's a bit of a strange culture in Scotland of you know there are Scottish classical composers going back you know to 18th even earlier and particularly through the 20th century there are, there are a lot there's a whole movement of a sort of renaissance of um, Scottish sort of arts culture and literature that, that went alongside music as well so I got really interested in researching and finding out more about these composers. And one of the really big names is Ronald Stevenson. Um, who, and Georgie knew of this piece and uh, knew that he'd maybe written something else for the accordion. Um, but it all started with this piece, which is called The Harlot's House for Accordion and Percussion. And it's a, and 
a wonderful 30 minute um, piece. And I mean, when I say percussion, I mean almost any, every single percussion instrument that you can think of. It's a real challenge actually to, to squeeze it all on stage, but it's got yeah. timpani and marimba <laughs> and xylophone and drum kit and maracas and crotales and tubular bells, just everything. It was actually originally premiered by Evelyn Glennie, who, you know, a massive international percussionist and Scottish star. Um, and he worked with Owen Murray to get this piece played. But many of the pieces that Owen Murray had worked with Scottish composers to, to commission and get performed haven't really endured in the repertoire, or maybe there just wasn't a community in Scotland at the time to, to keep on performing them and keep on... And so I discovered this piece, fell in love with it. And it's 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 called it's got an interesting title in the score. It's it's called A Dance Poem for Oscar Wilde. Um and I spoke to unfortunately I never got to meet Ronald Stevenson. He he died, I think, back in two thousand and fourteen, fifteen, some sometime around then. But I went to visit his um, widow, Marjorie. And she told me that he had originally envisioned this piece as a, a dance work where a, a gauze, a sort of thin sheet of material would be stretched over the stage and there would be dancers dancing behind it and lit up like shadows. So like a sort of shadow puppetry, puppetry display. And it fits so nicely with the story behind it because the, the, the poem is this uh, poem by Oscar Wilde about two... Um, Two people who are walking down a moonlit street at night and they pass by a brothel, uh, which is buzzing with light and there's, they kind of stop and they're drawn in by these sort of what he describes as ghostly figures, almost like puppets sort of moving in jerky m- movement. And some of the, the language and tone of the poem is a slight sort of grotesque sort of, um, imagery, but there's a wee twist at the end where um, the man who's the narrator, his partner, actually leaves his side and is drawn in, is sort of drawn in by the light. And it all finishes with the dawn coming up. So anyway, this piece, it really is a wee bit like a tone poem. It follows the poem almost exactly side by side. And so on the album, it starts off with a reading of the poem because I, I didn't see how anyone could really get into the piece without having that that background. Uh, but also on the album, so when I decided, I went on to decide I really want to record this and get it out there so people can hear it. And, you know, it's quite hard to arrange performance opportunities for it because it's got so much percussion in it. So I thought I'll record it. I started looking around to see if Stevenson had written anything else for classical accordion. And in a dusty archive in the National Library of Scotland, I found this other little collection of three solo pieces um which is which he had written called a celtic suite um which is a lovely little trio and i think was the probably the first thing that he kind of worked on with owen on how to write how to write for classical accordion so that came up and then i started looking at some of his piano works that i could transcribe and that fitted in really well and i the, the only last thing i thought well maybe Maybe we're just missing something, something text-based to go along with the poem. And I love working with singers. I'm, I really love poetry. And as you mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of work with sort of storytelling. I just love it when words get involved. And so Stevenson, maybe the two things that he's best known for, even 
though he's not as well known as he should be, is his piano works, solo piano works. He was an incredible pianist, a really, you know, virtuosic pianist and that allowed him to play almost anything. And his songwriting, his settings of, of text. And so I did a few transcriptions of the piano parts for accordion of the ones that I thought would work best. Um, and voila, the album was created. And I just, I would love as many people who are interested in it to go and have a listen because this is music that you won't, even, even in Scotland where it's, you know, from and we should be celebrating it. People don't really know about it that much. And yet I think it's fantastic. It's so full of character and colour and Stevenson himself loved literature and we spent a lot of time with poetry, with poets and sort of, so it's, you just feel these sort of, these really subtle craftings of light and shade, tone, timbre, texture that weave their way through words and through a story in a way it can just flip. It's not a sort of, you know, oh, this first movement is in this character and the second movement, every, every little bit has a wee twist and a turn and a, an edge to it. Sorry. Yeah. No, amazing. Amazing. I, I think you explained, uh, without actually explaining, you know, the pieces, <laughs> which, which is really great because I love also the concept of the fact that, um, you included the poem. Was, yeah. was it you who was reciting the poem? It was me. And you know what? It was the recording. You did an session. amazing job. You did an amazing job. I got so into it and you, it, you could feel the rhythm. You could feel the, you know, the timing. You could feel the music inside the words. Like when I was listening, it's like, okay, this guy knows, knows what he's doing. He went deep into the words and he knows how to bring them out. Because then like the percussion work with, with the accordion, yeah. It, it really, to me, the entire CD, the entire album seemed like a theater piece of one hour, you know, yeah. because immediately after the poem that, you know, you also kind of had the um, the consonants in the right places, you know, a bit darker or a bit more hard pronounced. Mm-hmm. And then I would hear that on the percussions, for example. Yeah. So I think you did really an amazing job. And listeners, go and listen to the CD. Uh, again, I put the link in the description of the episode. Uh, it's really worth it. And I think some of the works should be more well known among the international community because it's really, really great music. And I felt it's very authentic. You know, somebody might think it's not very modern, but, it, you know, I think it's really modern in the sense that it follows its own logic and it it follows its own thing you know it's not trying to imitate anything or anyone at least from my standpoint you know now we will listen to tempo di vals written by ronald stevenson and performed by neil sutcliffe and michael o'rourke
Well, one of the interesting things I think I've found about Ronald Stevenson's composing style is that so he was, you know, a, a passionate transcriber as well of works of other composers and really, you know, academic as well. He, he produced some sort of programs for the BBC about composers and things like that and wrote articles. And he, I, th- I find he has a, a wonderful way of sort of, you know, drawing in stylistically bits from other sort of uh, composers or genres or ideas but still retaining this you know kind of bringing it into his own voice not just Mm -hmm. sometimes hear composers or writers or songwriters sort of quoting or just 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 taking something and sort of sticking it on but he really finds his you can you can hear his own connection with the music and the material through that and it's worth saying that there are some I mean, the, almost all of the Harlot's House quotes from different musical styles and there's little secrets hidden in. I, I need to find some way of sharing the sleeve notes because I wrote a sort of background to the pieces which help you help point out some of these things a wee bit better. But um, yeah, one of the biggest themes is the DSERA, mm-hmm. which kind of... <laughs> If you if you didn't if you weren't looking for it you might just no, not notice it until kind of towards the end of the piece but it weaves its way up through the whole thing really. Well, you have this very well written blog post on your website which I will also link in the description yes. of the episode mm-hmm. because I think it also brings the listener on a journey of how this album was conceived and how you actually thought about it and mm. the entire process and I found it very beautifully written and also taking us the readers on a journey and it's a journey not that you're saying oh i did this i did that and i did this sort of kind of happened and you take us through the process of how it you know went along yeah Uh, and i think it's it speaks a lot and it's you know it's very important to kind of manage to put our egos aside, especially because we are proud of what we are doing, you know, many times, especially when we put a, such a project together mm-hmm. uh, and to actually say, well, yeah, it is me who did that, but let's focus on the music, the composer, on the process, on the amazing people that yeah. were with me on this journey. And yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's really great when one, sees that and one one manages to actually do that uh, because many times it's a tour of me 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 i found it i did this i recorded it i <laughs> okay we know you did it, yeah but, you know, <laughs> what is what, it <laughs> uh, <laughs> exactly exactly um i think now that i'm talking to you and you know hearing you being so passionate about it and i, I think that you also through this album, you told a story because also the order of the mm. pieces, you know, the, the equilibrium, the balance that you found inside the album. I think it was really, really well done. Maybe it has to do something with your interest in storytelling. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that because I think that storytelling got this bit of a negative, um, connotation to it over the past two, three years, especially with mainstream media, Mm. because, you know, they're telling us 
stories trying to influence our opinion about certain global events. In my opinion, this is not, you know, it's just me expressing my own opinion. Um, not necessarily having to do with the facts or with the reality. So it's a, a narrative, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but storytelling is much more, or it can also be that if it's instrumentalized in some way for, a, yeah. for an agenda. But let's talk about the art form of storytelling. Yeah, so I... I, so as uh, from the traditional sort of folk side of my playing and my singing, my mum is a really incredible folk singer. And so I grew up with a lot of songs I kind of already half knew and I knew the words. And when I was maybe about 15, 16, I became a little more conscious of the fact that I knew these songs and interested in them and wanting to learn more about where they came from. And it was sort of through that that I started to be interested in storytelling. And one of the big things for me was I, I, I did this performance on an island called Lismore, which is quite a small island on the west coast of Scotland for a, a literary and arts festival. And I was there playing some Cajun and Zydeco music. It was all a strange thing. But I met two storytellers there, a Danish storyteller called Sven Eriking and his partner, his now wife, Alice Fernbank. And they were doing a show called Giants. They're both very tall and they do this wonderful show where they do folk tales from around the world about giants. And I met them and I, I just, I was kind of, I was just ripe. I was really ready to dive into this world and started talking to them and kind of became friends. And a few months later, Sven got in touch and said, would you like to come and create some music for a storytelling show I'm doing about the Vikings and how they traveled to Shetland in the north of Scotland and that sort of connection. And since that was the very beginning, and since then I have worked on, I think, maybe about six or seven, maybe more, storytelling shows. There's a wonderful storytelling scene in Scotland based around this centre in Edinburgh, the um, Scottish Storytelling uh, Centre, which has is a real hub for storytellers. And when I say storytellers, it's interesting that you brought up what sort of storytelling means, because it, it can have this vague definition. Um, you know, you you can say that, you know, almost any art form is about storytelling. Music is about communicating a narrative or something. But storytelling in a more sort of maybe traditional sense is about telling folk tales or fairy tales or stories orally. It might be passed down orally or it might be read through books and stuff like that. But for me, I was just really interested in it and drawn to it because... First of all, it's the most fabulous tool for exercising your imagination to go and listen to a fairy tale or a folk tale or to, to try and tell one yourself. And second of all, it's, it's about communication. For me, that's the heart of it. And I'm really interested in how we communicate <laughs> with each other as humans. Um, it's, and it's really, it's really maybe what I'm most passionate about, even in performance. I see all my performances musically as a chance to connect with an audience. And I'm really interested in the different settings and the different contexts in which you're making music uh, and how you as a performer can adapt to those settings. That, that, that's, that's really the bit about performance that really gets me excited is, oh, I'm in a different space and suddenly I feel a bit distanced from the audience. How, how can I, how can I break that down a little bit? 
Um, so maybe slightly embarrassingly, I think I've got more compliments on the way I introduce and talk about the music I'm going to play than what I actually play. But hey, if that's what people, I do find that especially with classical music and especially contemporary music, because I love, you know, experimental, more weird and wacky things. One of the first pieces that I really fell in love with from the classical repertoire was cinema. By Berinsky. Mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. <laughs> all my all, all my other friends couldn't understand why I wanted to do the big <laughs> cinema, <laughs> but I, I loved it because it was so full of drama and character. Um, yeah, but I, I, when you're performing programs like that to audiences that have never seen a classical accordion before, free bass, haven't heard this sort of music, um, I think it is so so helpful to be able to give them a way into that just to make it accessible. And I'm really passionate about talking about that with other performers. And because I feel like it's a really, it's a bit, it's such a big part of performance and music that we actually don't talk about enough is everything that you do that's not about playing your instrument or singing, you know, because we're so hyper-focused on scales and arpeggios and technique and getting the right note and, you know, musical expression and form and structure, which is all so important. And the music can exist in that sort of pure form. But for me, honestly, if if we want to invite people into that, that, that don't already have the key, you know, if you already have the key to that sort of music, if you've already been shown the way in. So some people already have the key into this. They, they, they've been through concert from early age or someone has, you know, talked their way into it. But if we want to open it up to folk who don't have that, I think often it really helps just to be able to create a human connection. And you can write detailed program notes, but there's nothing like walking onto stage and just saying, hello, it's really lovely to see you all here. Thank you for coming. Um, and, you know, that, that kind of just personable. And I found that a lot of the things that I was learning from these storytellers who spend their entire lives thinking about how how can I communicate this tale best? What's the clearest way? What are the key parts? Like, what does this actually mean, this story? And it's an interesting thing when you're telling fairy tales, you know, that have these really rigorous sort of established structures and some that are, you know, have conf- quite confronting issues. But, you know, in, in our modern culture, you know, you can come across a lot of sexism or, you know, just difficult topics. You, you have to take it all apart and think, right, what, what is at the heart of this? And what are the bits that I don't need to hang on to? And just that process for me of how do I distill a bit of music or a, a song or a story down into its simplest form and give someone a way into that as accessible as possible. So for me, storytelling has been a really important part of how to present the music uh, to a wider audience. Now we will listen to Day is Dune by Ronald Stevenson, performed by Neil Sutcliffe and Rosie Lavery.
I know, I know that was a huge ramble, but it is. It, I could talk. I mean, I could talk about. It was that perfect. We, we we should we should get at some point and talk about that because I think it's so undervalued by us musicians, uh, and that's why you're being complimented on as well because it's you know, if you're on that stage. It's for some reason, because you are good and, you know, it's undoubtable, it's unquestionable. Otherwise, you wouldn't be performing, you know, a recital, hopefully. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, now, like, since, two, I think, 2021, I think, yeah, I cannot go on stage and not say a couple of words, maybe to introduce the piece, maybe to connect. I find that this dialogue that you can actually establish with the audiences brings you much closer to mm -hmm. them and them to you and also at the same time to the music because it's not about because you know let's face it if, if they wanted just to hear the pieces on the program they could just sit at home or find a youtube playlist or make their own youtube playlist and hear it in amazing quality i'm in front of you you know you, you can pause me you can go and take a coffee break, grab a glass of wine, talk to someone. I mean, that's that's a completely different experience. Yeah. The fact that we are in this common space, and as you're saying, you know, every single performance is different. Of course, we are preparing as musicians to deliver the best possible performance, you know. Uh, but at the same time, each performance is different. Why? Because the people are different, because the mood is different, because the space is different, you know. And... Yeah, I think that people actually, yeah, I noticed that, that people actually really enjoy artists talking to them because it makes also the whole experience more approachable, more relatable. Yeah. But at the same time, many musicians hate talking on stage. They just, you know, I, I worked, I played with some really great performers who have absolutely no problem going on stage and just like delivering one of the most amazing performances you've heard in your life. And at the same time, you know, I asked this famous uh, violin player if he minded if I said a couple of words about the pieces, and he was like, mm, we could do without, but if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, but I kind of, I got so used to it that I need it, you know, and I was terrible in the beginning. I was getting lost in what I was saying. I was forgetting stuff that I was saying. And, you know, I think many musicians think, oh, you just improvise, you go and ramble and, you know, say a couple of things. No, it's so absolutely different because you also need to practice that as yeah. well. As you are saying, you know, it's as an art, storytelling, this, the storytellers. And I think I absolutely loved what you said about the folk aspect of it, of storytellers. You know, when you were talking, I was imagining this, Uh, we're all sitting around the fire and everybody's telling the stories and, you know, all of this. Uh, maybe you've said the same story like two nights ago, but this time it's different because the, the people yeah. are different. How do you deliver that? How do you tell that? And, yeah, it's, you know, it's so different also from the, the sort of storytelling people are telling you. Well, you, you know, you need in, on social media, on TikTok, 30 seconds, yeah. you need to tell a story. Uh, Yeah, but, you know, that's maybe one part of it, the engagement thing. But, you know, how do you actually keep the audience engaged for 50 minutes? Yeah. Interwoving yeah. music and what you're saying, you know. It's that, not only a presentation. It's, 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 
taking the listener by the hand and saying, I'm taking you on this journey with me for the next 50, 60 minutes. Absolutely. And just a little bit about, because you're absolutely right that the idea of storytelling, someone that has, is, can be, can be used in a negative way as well. And for me, thinking about that sort of storytelling and communication is also makes me think and confront power dynamics and sort of power mm-hmm. structures, you know, thinking about, okay, well, if I'm up on stage, I am this sort of leading voice, as it were. You know, I, I have these people have come to see me and I have some element of control over how I present this Absolutely. music and this space and, and how I take ownership of that sort of. And for me, I think maybe just talking about that element of performance and storytelling and communication helps bring up some of these issues that if, if you don't talk about them can just insidiously creep away. Because people that are good storytellers do have power, do have a, a power of persuasion and a power of because you, we want to listen to them because just the way they speak is so engaging and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that learning about storytelling and commun- communication also helps you understand what and kind of sometimes see through what people are just that that power that you might see on the outside and think about, oh, hang on. What are you actually saying there? You know, what, what's the message behind this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also building the, the you know, the build up to some, some, you know, you're there with your bated breath and waiting when, when something is going to happen. You're absolutely right about the power because I am kind of getting a hold and control of your time, of your emotion in that moment yeah. as well. The suspense, the waiting, the, release of that suspense, you know, the climax of the entire story. Now, that's absolutely fascinating. And Neil, do you have some tips for, you know, young listeners out there who were kind of thinking about trying it, but are afraid or maybe don't feel very comfortable? How how do you connect with your audiences and how do you prepare maybe for, you know, to tell the story for your performance as well? It's It's interesting. I ran a workshop recently for an organization that I work for in Scotland called Live Music Now Scotland that do fantastic work sending musicians into all sorts of contexts. And I ran a workshop on how to integrate the idea of storytelling into performance. So I I did a lot of thinking about this. And I think the key, I mean, just like anything, is to start doing it and just start in a really small way. You know, I think it can be very, it is very scary to think, you know, oh God, I've got to introduce all my pieces and I've got to, I think the first thing that people tend to think, I remember thinking this a while ago, is like, oh God, I need to go and do so much research. You know, <laughs> I need to go and get all my dates right and I need to remember it. And who was it that performed this first? And, you know, and God, I need to do musical analysis. And that, that's not the way. That's, that's, that's what most people think they need to yeah. do. And you know, actually, Mozart was born, who died. Exactly. <laughs> Actually, that's not, that stuff is very interesting and you can incorporate it if, if it feels comfortable. But for me, the, the, the best way into just trying a little bit is about thinking about reflecting on well, why, why, why did I choose to play this piece? What is it that, hmm. you know, is, what is the one thing in this piece that really grabs me? Is there a moment? Is it the title? Is it the scene? Do I imagine something when I'm playing this piece? And then you can start to think about, well, is there some way that I can that I can condense that down to share that with an audience? Even if it's just describing a scene, sometimes 
my introductions are as simple as I'm going to play a piece next. And for me, this is full of oranges and yellows and sort of autumnal colours. It's like a whole scene of maple trees and their leaves just fall. If you, you can just plant a tiny little picture and maybe that's enough to give people that key into the music. Um, I, yeah, I agree. I think many times less is actually more. Just give an image, say a couple of words, set the stage, yeah. as it were, for the audience to actually listen to that piece in the mindset that you kind of find yourself in, you know, and also the emotional state. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and talk, just, just talk about it. Do what we're doing now. Talk to your friends about it. Talk to the other musicians that you play with. Have these discussions about, well, well, about what, what happens? Maybe does that take something away from performance? I've heard that a lot, a lot of time. People saying, well, I'm worried that if I speak, you know, I don't feel so confident speaking. So I wouldn't feel so confident playing or I'm going to distract the audience from the playing and it's just mm-hmm. focus should be on the music. And and that's a valid point, you know. I have heard performances where people talk too much or it's obvious that they're a bit nervous and that affects the playing or your experience of that. But if you start talking about it with your friends and with your teachers and just trying out, find your own voice as well. Like everyone has their own storytelling voice, their own. And the most powerful thing I always feel to watch on stage is to watch, watch someone come out and really have this grounding of you feel that they are comfortable in themselves in that space there's nothing worse than going to a performance and seeing someone who feels uncomfortable on stage or is a bit nervous because you bring that into yourself and suddenly the whole performance is sort of filled with this oh is something going to go wrong oh no oh no you know that kind of yeah it's just you know mm -hmm. i'm here and everyone will have their own Everyone will have their own way of being on stage. And some people might talk more. Some people might talk less. Some might not talk at all, but can still do things to show the audience that they acknowledge their existence. You know? Yeah. That yeah. Kind of... Absolutely. And I think the stage amplifies everything that we are feeling as a performance like a hundred times more. So even if you're nervous or you're happy about being there, that radiates towards the audiences and they, you know, I started kind of going to more and more concerts. As a student, I went to a lot of concerts. Um, then for some reason, I think I just overwhelmed myself with concerts. So for a couple of years, I was just going to some that interested me, you know, especially. Um, and now I'm kind of getting back into going to all sorts of concerts, Hopefully they're good ones. Uh, I choose my, you know, the concerts I go to. Um, but yeah, and I, and I feel that's again another topic, like about the audiences and the age of the audiences and so on and the experience that we're getting. But you know, I go there with the mindset of, you know, I want you to do well, you, the performer. I want to enjoy my time being with you, getting to know you, getting to hear what you're working on, and. You know, I think because many times as students, we're our own worst judges, as in we are the ones sitting in the audience during our performer performance and finding everything that's wrong with our performance, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but getting back to the connecting with, with the audience um, and talking off the stage, 
it's not, as you are saying, it's not necessary to do that. You know, it doesn't need to be now everybody needs to talk off the stage. If you're comfortable doing that, try it out. If you're not comfortable, maybe you could, you know, try in a couple of settings where it's less formal so that you can yeah. feel better. If even if it doesn't really go, you know, in a very comfortable way. And also it will not be perfect the first time. It will not be perfect the second time, maybe the third. But on the fourth time, you might actually start getting into it. And as you were saying, finding your own voice. You know, it took me a bit. <laughs> I, I remember some of the concerts where I was like performing a piece, but I remembered something. And then after the, the piece, or maybe after the second piece that they played, oh, I forgot to mention, but actually yeah. <laughs> in the first piece, and they were like, uh, okay. <laughs> because, you know, if they want the dates and what the composer did and so on, there's Google, they can go outside of the hall and yeah. search for, for the performer. So, yeah, no, those are really great tips. Neil, if you're doing something around Central Europe, or maybe I, if I come to Scotland, I'm going to enroll to your workshops because it's a very, it's an amazing topic. And <laughs> come, whole world, come to Scotland. There's, there's, Absolutely. there's exciting things going on, and there's other composers. It's not just um, it's not just Ronald Stevenson that's written for classical accordion. There's other works, and I have a dream of of some sometime in the future putting together an album of showcasing all these works by Scottish composers. And I do a lot of work with young composers and contemporary composers, trying my very best to explain how the accordion works for them and how to write for it. And so there's 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 so much happening here. You know, I think one of the next CDs that you really need to do that because I would buy that and I would listen to that would be doing a contemporary works for accordion and voice like Flesh by Rebecca Saunders. Yeah. I think that's one that would be amazing for, for an album, for you especially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's also other works that have this kind of use of the voice together with the instrument like Hans Zender has an amazing piece. And, uh, yeah, but, uh, I kind of see something brewing there and I, I really like, you're young, you're going to make a lot of new stuff and I'm really looking forward to, you know, hearing your voice as it were musical and yeah. your verbal voice. Uh, where can people find, if they would want to perform the pieces by Ronald Stevenson, where can they find the works? So. The Harlot's House, that piece, the 30-minute piece for accordion and percussion, uh, can be found on the Ronald Stevenson Society. They have a website, and you can go and purchase scores online there. Okay. That is there. The the suite of three pieces, A Celtic Cycle, has never been published anywhere. Uh, it's, mm. it's, uh, I only got it in its manuscript form from the, the National Library. I mean, further down the line, I, another project that I would love to get down to is creating a sort of some sort of publishing company to to get some of this stuff out. But um, yeah, I, they can get people can get in touch with me, and I can put them on to Marjorie Stevenson, Ronald's widow, and she would, I'm sure, be really happy to arrange copies of those scores to be sent out to folk. Um, I would need to write down some of my own transcription works. <laughs> For for the songs and the settings like that. Mm-hmm. But um, if anyone's interested, get in touch with me. I've I've got a website uh, which is just neosuckliff.scot, and you can get in touch with me there. And I would love to, you know, just I'd love to talk about this stuff with people that are interested. Try and support them to to find places where they can find scores. There is also uh, in Glasgow we have the Scottish Music Centre. 
I'm spending a lot mm-hmm. of time there at the moment, which is a platform for Scottish music internationally, but also has an archive, a really big archive of scores by Scottish composers, and they have some accordion works there, uh, so you can get in touch with them. Now we will listen to Totentanz, written by Ronald Stevenson and performed by Neil Sutcliffe and Michael O'Rourke. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, I will put the link to your website because it's also very nicely curated and you also have a blog there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, people can contact you then. Listeners, contact Neil if you'd like to perform some of the pieces. Um, and if you'd like to talk to him about your doubts, maybe about storytelling or get some tips or, you know, um, have a session with him about how you can bring your own voice out mm-hmm. during the performances. Uh, yeah. So, Neil, where can people hear you in the upcoming months? Oh, my goodness. I, I haven't done that much international traveling and performing with classical music. I've done some stuff with storytelling and some traditional stuff. But um, I have my latest exciting project, which will be launching in February, is a new ensemble collective, which is going to be called the Bubbly Jock Collective. And Bubbly Jock mm. is, is actually one of the songs on the album. 
and bubbly jock is a Scots word for the turkey. Uh, and okay. the bubbly jock collective is accordion, uh, voice, Rosie Lavery, who's the singer on the album as well, soprano, and a wonderful pianist called Anna Michels, who is also passionate about Scottish piano music. And the three of us just decided enough is enough. This music isn't being performed enough. There's all these scores sitting dusty and unused in archives. Let's make a collective that can come together and put in performances. So in February, we're going to have our launch in Glasgow uh, on the 18th, Sunday the 18th. Uh, and from there on, we'll be trying to organise some tours, putting out music, putting, doing some recordings, things like that. Trying to showcase and just bring out of the archives this wealth of music, chamber music, songs, uh, solo pieces for piano, accordion, and further down the line, maybe incorporating other instruments as well. So Amazing. that's my, my yeah. latest thing coming up. Um, that's all I can think of right now. But there's there, there, there'll be more stuff on my website. I keep all my events and upcoming concerts and performances there. Um, yeah. If anyone wants mm-hmm. to check that out. Absolutely. So go on to keep an eye out for his website and you'll find all the latest performances there. And I think we're all very excited about this new collective. And I think it's amazing that, you know, you said, well, you know, nobody's doing anything about it. So why not us? Let's just do yeah. that. There are, I should say, there are a few other people doing little bits. It's not like we're the only ones, but there's so much. So the more people that are, that are just... Exactly. There's such a wealth, you know, it's not like if somebody's doing that, you're already, oh, no, okay, somebody's already doing exactly. that. One person's mm-hmm. doing all that work. No. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, why not you as well? So, you know, exactly. yeah. Well, Neil, it has been amazing talking to you. Thanks again for being here, for reaching out to me. And I really hope to meet you in the new year somewhere around Europe or maybe even in Scotland. That would be wonderful. If you ever come to Scotland, you're so welcome. Same for you. If you ever come to, you know, middle of Europe, southern Germany, uh, western Austria, you're very welcome to, mm-hmm. to let me know and we will meet up. That would be amazing. Cool. Well, thanks again, and good luck with all of your projects. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. Reach out with comments, suggestions, listen to the other episodes if you haven't done so yet. Feel free to reach out to me on social media, send in an email. You can also send in a voice message if you'd like. The link is in the description of the episode right at the bottom. If you'd like to support the podcast, if it brings value to you, if you find it helpful and useful and entertaining or whatever the reason, there's also the option to support the podcast with a small donation, monthly donation, or as a listener did a while back, um, you could also book, for example, a virtual coffee with me and have a chat about whatever it is you are doing, maybe I'm the right person to push you in the right direction. You never know. Thank you again for listening and see you in the next episode.